Good morning, church. Uh, please, if you have a Bible with you or a phone or something that has scripture in it or with it, uh, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 23. And I'm going to read uh, just a, a couple of verses and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. I actually want to start by looking at chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. And then I want to read chapter 24, uh, verse 1. And then I say we'll pray and we'll get into chapters 23 and 24. So 2 Chronicles chapter 22, starting in verse 10, says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Azahiah, saw her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joaz, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the, uh, the wife of Jeho, uh, Jehoiada, uh, the priest, for she was a sister of Isaiah, hid him with Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, chapter 24, verse 2, actually. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn what we're meant to learn from this part of your word. I pray, Father, that you would teach us what it means to be godly people, what it means to have our hearts turned towards you, our mindset to be turned towards you. Teach us what that means. We thank you, Father, for uh, the example we have of this man in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the work that you do in our hearts uh, by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, above all, for Jesus, who qualifies us and enables us to live uh, with you and for you. Bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So really interesting scenario that we're in right now in the book of Chronicles. As, as Stephen shared a couple of weeks ago, he kind of ended up with the scenario we just read where uh, the queen mother saw that her son uh, had died, the king of Judah had died. And so what she does is she gets rid of any competition. She, she goes and she has all the children of the king. These are her grandchildren now. She has them all murdered. She wants to make sure that there's no uh, male heir to the throne so she can put herself on that throne. And it's interesting because the author of Chronicles obviously wants to contrast two women here. One, Athaliah, this queen, wicked queen mother who wants to take the throne for herself. And the other is this woman, Jehoshabeth, who was married to the, the, the priest we're going to talk a lot about today, Jehoiada. And, and she, Jehoshaphat, sees, no, this isn't right. And she steals away her brother's son, Joash, and they hide him in the temple. And so we get to the scenes in chapters 23 and 24. We're really introduced to uh, the time that uh, Joash is reigning. And the emphasis is not so much on Joash as it is on this priest, Jehoiada. It's as if the author wants his first readers to see, listen, even when there's not a mature king on the throne, there's still hope if we're willing to meet God or take God at his word, we're willing to believe the promises of God. Because that's exactly what Jehoiada did. 
And, and I love the fact that in these, in these chapters, we see this amazing influence that uh, Jehoiada has on Joash, the king. How the priest really was the sort of heartbeat of Judah at this time. And the, all the, 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 the restoration and the repairs to the temple that we'll read about, they actually happened because of his good influence. And so we, we really want to ask ourselves, what would characterize Jehoiada? What, what would we say is the thing that characterized him that would bring this influence? And I want to sum it up in one word, godliness. Godliness. It's kind of an old-fashioned word. We used to have the saying, I, I don't know if it was here, but it was definitely in the States, that cleanliness is next to godliness, whatever that's supposed to mean. But that was the, the phrase. It's kind of an old-fashioned phrase. And we think, well, what's godliness? What does that actually mean? Does godliness mean you walk around acting like you're better than somebody else? No, that's called arrogance. Godliness, though, is an attitude. But it's a God-word attitude. Godliness, I would define it this way, as a God-word attitude demonstrating by conduct a reverence and love for God. Now, this might sound a bit extreme or radical to some of you who are watching today, but actually it's, it's all over our culture, isn't it? Every sports fan kind of has this kind of commitment, if you think about it. What, what is a sports fan, or how do you identify a sports fan? How do we know they love their team? They wear their logos, right? They wear their team jerseys. They buy season tickets, or in this day and age, from the season we're in now, they rewatch past seasons. Because they love their team, they're committed to their team, their thoughts are on their team. What are they doing? It's shown by their actions, how they commit themselves to that team. Well, in a very real sense, the person that loves God shows their commitment in this pursuit of godliness. That because their hearts are turned towards God, because they want to know Him better, they want to love Him, they want to please Him, they're committed in a way that shows in their actions. Now, this is something that God actually calls us to pursue. The scriptures actually call us to pursue this kind of a heart, this kind of an attitude. Paul writes to his, uh, his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. In, in the context, it's fleeing material uh, wealth and those sorts of things. He says, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. So, so God calls us, if, we're, if we would call ourselves Jesus followers, if we are those who know that we're loved by God because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the covenant that he's made for us, if we believe that, then the, the, the way that we express that is to pursue godliness, is to say, God, I want to have a mindset. I want to have an attitude that says, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you in all things. And so we have this great example of godliness in Jehoiada, and we wanna, I want to learn from him today. I hope we can learn from him four things about godliness. The first one we're going to look at, chapter 23, verses 1 to 11. The first thing about godliness we learn from Jehoiada is that godliness is distinctly biblical. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, In the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and made a covenant with captains of hundreds. And then in verse uh, uh, verse of verse 1, it names who those captains were. And in verse 2, it says, And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And then all the assembly made a covenant with the king uh, in the house of God, and they said, Behold, and he said, that is Jehoshaphat said, uh, Jehoiada, sorry, said, 
Um, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. So here we have Jehoiada the the priest. He's he's in a a situation where uh, the the grand uh, mother of Joash, who's just a, a young child now, She's ruling Judah. She's a wicked king who, uh, queen who put herself on that throne, and she's ruling Judah. And here he's in a, in a very uh, a kind of a time where he'd probably be tempted just to kind of preserve himself, to try to keep his job, try to keep his life. But he doesn't do that. The Bible says that he strengthens himself during this time, and he rallies or he mobilizes God's people, or mobilizes Judah around this promise that God had made to David concerning a, a, a son on his throne. Now, I want to read that promise just as a way of reminder for those of you who haven't been with us in in the study through 1 and 2 Chronicles. Here's the promise from 1 Chronicles chapter 7, or 17, sorry. So God says to David, when your days are fulfilled uh, to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That would be Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that God made to David. You're always going to have a son on the throne. And this, all Jewish people believe that this promise would extend to who we know as the Christ or the Messiah, that's Jesus. That they understood that God would send his chosen king. So what you have here is Jehoiada, Jehoiada, he's seeking to honor God's chosen king by mobilizing God's people around the promise that there was gonna be this chosen king. In fact, he's so concerned about making sure that promise comes to pass, he's so committed to the promise of God, look what he does in verse four. He says to these priests and these family tribe leaders, he says, this is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One one third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of the foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord, but let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priest and those who are of the Levites. Now remember, that's where they're hiding Joash is in the house of the Lord. They may come in, uh, Jehoiada says uh, in verse 6, they may uh, go in for they are holy, but all people shall keep watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall shall surround the king on all sides, sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. For you are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. And so Jehoiada, he, he basically exhorts these Levites uh, saying, listen, you're, you're, when you come to do your priestly duties, I want you to be arranged in such a way that there's no way any enemies of God's chosen king could come in and slay this child king. He's protecting him. Now, now, why is he doing this? He's doing this because he wants to honor God's chosen king. He wants to make sure that king is protected. He's concerned with the promise that God made to his people. You know, you have to believe that God wants to Keep his promises to his people if you're going to put yourself at risk this way. And we see this has been, uh, this this continues to be as hard if you look at verse 8. So then the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took uh, his men who were 
uh, to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada, the priest had not dismissed the divisions. And then Jehoiada, the priest, gave the captains of the hundreds uh, the spears and the large and small shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God. And they, then he set all the people, every man with his weapon in his hand from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, all along the altar and by the temple, all around the king. Now listen to this, verse 11. And they brought out the king's son, put a crown on him and gave him the testimony and made him king. And then Jehoiadad and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. Now, I want you to notice in verse 11 how it says that once they they had him protected, they had him surrounded, they waited to just the right time when the temple guards probably would have been uh, kind of uh, maybe overlapping each other or it would have been okay for them to all be congregating in the temple area, probably a, a Sabbath day. And that's when they decide to bring the child king out and say, he's still alive, let's anoint him as king. But I want you to notice specifically what they give to the child king. It says they gave him the testimony. Now, what is this? What this is, is they're giving him a copy of the law of God. Why? Because God commanded when Israel would eventually have a king, that that king was to have his own copy of God's law for a reason. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, uh, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue uh, long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In other words, God says, Here's what I want for my king. When I finally have my chosen king on the throne, I want him to have his own copy of my word, my covenant with my people, and I want him to live by that so that he lives himself underneath the covenant of God. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Jehoiada here is seeking to follow God's law regarding the king. Can you see how he is distinctly motivated by what God's word says? Even though the circumstances around him would tell him, you know what, just play it cool, keep it safe. You don't want this crazy woman to kill you like she killed all uh, these uh, of her own grandchildren. Keep it safe. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, well, God's word says, God has promised that this is always going to be someone from the line of David on the throne. And so we're going to make sure that that king that we've protected becomes king. And God says that that king's supposed to be ruling not because we've given him power or only because he's one of David's sons, but, because, but he's supposed to rule according to what God has said in his word. You see, godliness is distinctly biblical. It requires that we are committed to what God has said. And so it begs the question, what is your attitude to this book, to scripture? How do you look at this? Is scripture kind of just some bizarre book that doesn't make any sense to you so you don't take the time to read it? Maybe it's your go-to book when you're feeling particularly spiritual. Oh, you know what? I, I, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a godly person. So I'm going to go ahead and read this book whether you make much of it or remember what it says or not. 
Or is it maybe just a rule book to you? You read it and it just makes you feel bad and it makes you think God's just another taskmaster who's trying to control my time. Or do you see God's word the way David the king, the the first holy king of Israel saw it, the first king that God himself chose? You see, David wrote the longest worship song in all the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. And that book, that that song is all about the word of God, the power of the word of God, the beauty of the word of God, how the word of God made him smarter than even those who taught him, how the word of God gave him wisdom, how the word of God was his delight, how the word of God was important to him. Job writes about how the word was better to him than his necessary food. This was the attitude of, to, toward Scripture that David had. This is the attitude toward Scripture that Jehoiada seems to have. Because part of being godly is saying, God, I want to know what your word says. There's this great verse in Isaiah. I'm sorry it's not going to be on your screen. I think it's Isaiah. I want to say it's Isaiah 66. I can't remember, but it says, who does God, who does God pay attention to, basically? I'm paraphrasing. It says, who does God look upon? The one who trembles and is contrite at his word, that God cares about, that we care about, that he's actually spoken to us. Can you see, Christian, how this points forward to Jesus? Can you see how Jesus, who comes as the word of God, according to John chapter one, that we're to care about him? Jesus himself said, didn't he, that those who are ashamed of me and my words at my coming, I'll be ashamed of him. No, seeing things as clearly Seeing the scripture as clearly what God has said is important for us if we want to have a heart, if we want to have an attitude that says, God, I love you, I reverence you, I want to follow you. So that's the first thing. Godliness is distinctly biblical. The second thing is this. In verses 12 to 21 of chapter 23, godliness is practically responsive. So Jehoiada wasn't just kind of, okay, I'm concerned about God's king. Now I'll just kind of chill out, meditate on God's word, and just feel good about myself. No, he was practically responsive. He wanted to do what God said. Look at verse 12 of chapter 23. It says, now when uh, uh, Athaliah, this is the, the queen mother, heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar at the entrance, and the leader of the trumpeters uh, were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and also the singers with musical instruments, uh, and those who, who led in praise. And Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason, which is a bit rich considering she killed all her grandkids, which is a massive act of treason. And Jehoiada, the priest, brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. In other words, don't just slay her, slay those who would want to protect her. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, verse 15, and she went out by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house, and they killed her there. This is heavy. It's heavy because we read this kind of stuff and in our modern thinking, we think that seems unjust. That just, that's no judgment, just boom, no kind of jury, just death and it's over. But you have to understand what's going on here. Don't forget, um, Athaliah had exalted herself and had murdered possibly dozens of innocent children simply because she wanted power. And Jehoiada was a godly man and he was not going to 
tolerate that kind of wickedness. He was going to deal with it uh, distinctly. He was going to execute a false leader. It's funny how easily we play around with things that are false. We'll talk more about that in a second, but look at verse 16. The Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the temple of Baal, that's a false god, and they tore it down and they broke in pieces its altars and its images and killed Matin, uh, the priest of Baal, before uh, the, the altars. Also Jehoiada appointed uh, the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom the Lord had assigned uh, into the house of the Lord. And we'll stop there for a second. Now, I, this is a, kind of the second thing that he does, where, where, where Jehoadad is a great example of someone who's practically responsive. Because he destroys uh, this false queen and makes and calls the people to be who they're supposed to be, the Lord's people, they respond to saying, listen, we should, if we're going to destroy a false queen, we should also destroy a false god. If there's a false god in our midst of Judah, we're, we're, we're meant to be God's people. We need to rid ourselves of this. They, so they destroy the temple of Baal. And so they don't just leave it there, though. They don't just destroy the temple of Baal. What happens in verse 18? Jehoiada appoints these priests to do what? It says to, uh, in verse, uh, where am I? Yeah, verse 18. He says that they, he pointed the house of the Lord to the hands of the priest Levites, whom David had assigned the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with singing, uh, with rejoicing and singing, as it was established by David. And he set the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one who was in any way unclean should enter. In other words, he doesn't just destroy or or execute the false leaders. He doesn't just destroy the temple of Baal. He reestablishes proper worship. When we talk about being practically responsive, it's not just about let's get rid of the bad. It's let's pursue the good. Let's embrace the good. In fact, I think one of the reasons we struggle with this idea of godliness, and we might even feel condemned about the fact, man, maybe my attitude isn't good enough, my conduct doesn't show that my thoughts are Godward, that my attitude is Godward. Sometimes the reason that happens is because we're so focused on, let's only get rid of the bad. That's bad, get rid of it. That's bad, get rid of it. And then we sit there twiddling our thumbs. As opposed to, God, what would you have me pursue? What is it you'd have me pursue? What's real worship look like? And so they did this. They reestablished proper Worship, And then in verse 20 and 21, it says, Then he took captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord. And they went uh, through the upper gate to the king's house and set the king on the throne of the kingdom. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain uh, uh, Athaliah with the sword. Now, Here, Jehoiada is this great example of practically responding to what God says, showing us what godliness looks like. And and again, it did begin with him saying, look, we're not going to put up with a false queen and we're not going to put up with false gods. Now, this reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament to the Corinthian church. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is from the New Living Translation. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but I like the way he writes it. It's written here. It says, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. So Paul's acknowledging the Corinthians have a pure and undivided devotion to Christ. They acknowledge Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. 
He says, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you've received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Do you see what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying, listen, you guys, you do a lot of great things. You're responding to Jesus in a lot of great ways. But one of the things that makes you vulnerable is you put up with rubbish. Specifically, I think the categories are really telling that they're open to a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. They're open to a different spirit than the Holy Spirit and his work that's described in the scriptures. They're open to a different gospel, which Paul said to the Galatians, right? If you believe a different gospel, anybody preaches a different gospel, I should say, let him be accursed. No, we have to be serious about what's true, about what's right. Part of godliness is responding to what God says, including saying, I'm not gonna accept what's bogus. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24 in context of the end of days. The first thing he says to his disciples, Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or they could, it could be translated, I am the anointed one and will deceive many. Now, this is important, too, because one of the things about godliness is, about this this pursuit of godliness, is godliness can come in authenticity or it can come just in form. It can come just as an outward uh, form where we use the, the right words, we say we believe in Jesus, and yet we live and actually believe in things that are completely bogus, that our love isn't Godward, it's toward other things. Listen to this. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm not going to read all verses 1 to 5, but I encourage you to look up uh, this verse later on and, and see all of 1 to 5. But here's what he says. This is from the NIV version. Paul writes, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. It's really worrying to me that I hear preachers of the gospel, supposedly preachers of the gospel, saying The thing that that we need most is to learn to love ourselves. Now, the problem is we already love ourselves too much. Paul says, here's here's part of the terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. It says, have nothing to do with such people. Heavy things, isn't it? You see, one of the things that we uh, are wrestling with right now in our day and age as Christians, and this is one of the reasons we have been doing the podcast and I've been having lots of phone conversations about this, is trying to discern, are we in the, these last days? How close are we to the Lord's return? And those are fair questions that we need to wrestle with. But our focus should not be so much on, do we see the end times time scale rightly? Is our eschatology just perfect? It's as important as that is. What's more important is that we recognize do we, do we recognize that the Jesus that we're following is the biblical Jesus? Are we indeed following him? Do we want to love him above all things? Or are we just having a form of godliness and yet not being changed by the power of the gospel? You see, one of the things we have to understand about godliness is you cannot passively pursue godliness. You can't just wait for godliness to happen. We need to take steps forward, practically responsive steps towards saying, God, I want my heart to be towards you. I do want to love you more than I love something else. What kind of practical steps can you take towards godliness today? 
Parents, how, how could you, how would you teach your kids about what godliness looks like? Because they're looking at us to see what it looks like. How can we do this? Now, here's what's amazing. Uh, Jehoiada does these things. Uh, he's setting a great standard. And then in chapter 24, the author of Chronicles now wants us to think about Joash. Now, Joash is this child king who's just been anointed king. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 24, Now Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Notice all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada uh, took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now we might balk at the fact he took two wives. Part of this really was probably about him making sure he had plenty of heirs so that the same mistake didn't happen again that it happened um, to Joash's brothers and sisters. Now, the, 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 what's really important that we, we see here is that Joash does what's right because he's under Jehoiada's influence. So can you imagine being a seven-year-old in charge of anything? That's probably one of the most scariest thoughts I can think of. Is being, <laughs> can you imagine being under a seven-year-old? Some of you parents know what that's like. But if a seven-year-old rules, that seven-year-old is dependent upon some really godly counsel. And that counsel has to be godly enough to make sure it's not looking to put himself into power. And we get an indication from the context, at least here in Chronicles, that he didn't do that. But no, he, he had a godly influence. He helped Joash do what was right in God's eyes while he influenced him. In fact, he had such an influence on Joash that Joash ended up finding his purpose of life in repairing the house of God. Look at chapter 24, verse 4. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Then he gathered the priests and the Levites and they said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year. See that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, of, uh, and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, the wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. Now, uh, what the question that um, Joash is asking Jehoiada, it stops at verse 6. Verse 7 is kind of like giving us an explanation. And so he, here's what we really have happening. Joash finds his purpose in life. You know what I want to do? He thinks I, what my heart is set on is, is restoring the temple to its glory, to see it completely repaired and used just as God wants it. And so what he does is he commands something that is according to God's word, that this tax be collected so that that temple can be maintained so that it's in good working order and it, is, uh, it fits what its purpose is to bring glory to God. And so when he gives the command, they hesitate. And verse 7 tells us they hesitated probably because they were like, well, we're not sure if we can trust uh, the people. We're not sure if we can trust what's going on. In a sense, Jehoiada here is, has kind of neglected part of his duty. Now, this is important. It's important because it shows that his influence over Joash was strong enough that Joash was willing to do what he had learned to do even if his teacher didn't, which is an amazing thing to think about when it comes to godly influences. 
Josh and I were talking uh, before the service about godliness and, and thinking about godly influences in our lives. And we both kind of noted that there's people in our lives who are amazingly godly influences in one area, but not so much in another area. Now, I think this is kind of on purpose. It's on purpose because the truth is, there's only ever been one perfectly godly man, Jesus. The rest of us are just doing our best to keep up, doing our best to be conformed to that image by the power of God's Spirit. Now, what happens? Joash takes not just this dream of seeing the, the temple repaired, but he puts it into actions, and he leads the, the charge to make sure that God's people invest in the house of God. Look at verse 8 of chapter 24. Then at the king's command, they made a chest, they set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord, and they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced and brought their contributions and put them in the chest until they all had given. And so it was at the time when the chest was brought to the king's officials by the hand of the Levites, and when they saw that there was much money, that the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and returned it to its place. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. Now notice that then it says, Then the king and Jehoiada, in other words, were working together, gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord, and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. And so the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them, and they restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, notice again, working together, and they made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering spoons and vessels of gold and silver, and they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Now, here's what happens. He leads, Joash leads God's people in investing. He partners with Jehoiada. They get this thing happening, and this is, this is what we really want to see about godliness. That godliness is powerfully influential. I think sometimes we have this mind that thinks, I have to get into a position. If I can get into some sort of a position, then I'll have influence. No, actually, you know what we need is to just be those who are pursuing godliness. I think about some of the people that have influenced my life, and they weren't in a position at all. I think about people at Surfing Church now that have a big impact on my life, and they're not necessarily in a position. They're just godly people wanting to seek after what God wants for them. Interesting, the Apostle Paul in, in a similar thought, says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, plural, who walk according to the example that you have in us, plural. In other words, Paul says, okay, brothers, after giving all this really important uh, instruction about theology and about what it means to walk with God, he says, okay, you need examples, so here, look to me, I can be an example, but don't just look to me. Look to those who are trying to live together in Christ and, and who are trying to follow the example of us being the apostles. Look for those who are following a corporate example. You see, guys, we're called to this culture of discipleship where we are helping each other and teaching each other and encouraging each other to pursue godliness. And, and, and don't underestimate how influential that can be. 
Don't think that because you're not in a position or you're not doing as much ministry, quote unquote, at church on a Sunday morning, which doesn't even happen anymore, you're not doing that so much like you used to do, that, that basically you don't have a way that you could be a positive influence. No, you pursuing God, wanting to be godly has an influence. In fact, I want you to think about right now, think about the people that have had a big impact in your walk with Jesus who have helped you learn to walk, the kind of people you thought, I want to imitate them in that way. I want to be more like them in this way. What did they do? How did they influence you? What was it about them? None of them were perfect, obviously, but what was it about them? And ask yourself, how can I be that for somebody else? How can I, how can I be an example of what it means to be godly? Well, it's gotta be authentic. It can't just be informed. But it's meant to be, God calls us toward godliness for our benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. It's meant to be powerfully influential. Now lastly, we're getting to the end and of chapter 24 and the end of this message. And I, I want to bring up the last point about godliness, and it's a sobering point. And we see this with Joash that godliness is often forsaken for bad advice. We could have said, or a bad substitute. Look at verse 15 of chapter 24. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. Now, this, that could be hyperbole. that They're exaggerating his age to show that he was considered as godly, if not more so, than even Moses. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. Amazing. He's a priest buried with kings. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and they bowed down to the king. The the Hebrew there would be an indication that they continually bowed down. In other words, they're trying to flatter the king. And so what happens? The king listens to them, verse 17. Therefore, because the king listened to these flattering leaders, verse 18, therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols, and the wrath came upon, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. How can things change that quickly? One of the things that can happen to us where we can find ourselves so far from God. We, we, maybe we, were, we were, felt like we were walking with the Lord, enjoying fellowship with the Lord, rejoicing in His grace and His forgiveness, and the fact that his, in His mercy and the fact that He's chased us down and got our attention and, and saved us in Jesus. It seems like one day we can be enjoying that and the next thing we find ourselves and we're just worshiping idols with idol worshipers all around us. Well, what happened in Joash's life, part of what happened was Jehoiada dies, and so the influence is gone. Now, there's a couple lessons I think we might get from this. One is we want to make sure that we're not just looking to a man to be an example to us. This is why we need many, this is why we need a culture of discipleship, not just a person to disciple us. We need, uh, we need people around us, brothers and sisters, that can help point us to Christ and show us what it means to follow him. But also it shows that once we, once we don't have godly influences around us, you know what will happen? We'll listen to ungodly ones. 
Now, you might be the kind of personality I find, I try to tell myself I'm this kind of personality, but the kind of personality that says, I'm independent, I make my own decisions, I do what I want to do. As if no one actually influences you, but that's not true. We're all easily influenced, which is why we all need to choose our influences wisely. Now, Jehoiadad doesn't do this. I'm sorry, Joash doesn't do this, and he begins to listen to idol worshipers. In fact, we see in verse 19, God even tried to warn him. He tried to bring him back. It says, yet God sent prophets to them, verse 19, to bring them back, that's all of Judah, back to the Lord, and they testified against him, but they would not listen. Now, we don't know which prophets for sure are mentioned here, but it does say prophets, plural. People who, who God had raised up to say, come back to the true and living God, stop serving idols. It says in verse 20, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. You would think he would have influence. His dad had such a huge influence on Joash. You would think the son would have influence as well. And he stood above the people and he said to them, thus says the Lord, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Do you get that, people? Do we get that? If we transgress what God says, we can't prosper. We're only asking for chastening and judgment. He says, but you have forsaken the Lord, verse 20, and he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against Zechariah, and at the command of the king, that's Joash, Joash, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done for him, but killed his son. And as his son died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. I want you to think about this. When Athaliah, wherever her name was, when that wicked queen basically was yelling treason, treason, who herself was a treacherous treason person, when she's going to get executed, Jehoiada would not execute her in the court of the temple because he thought that's a holy place, take her out to another place, it wouldn't be right. And yet here, Joash, who grew up knowing this, grew up, probably one of his first memories was seeing this, he doesn't do it. He takes the son of his mentor, you might say, and allows him to be murdered in, a, in, a, in the most defiling place, a place that would bring defilement to, to what God says. We're talking about here, listen, someone who has gone from my heart is to see God's, uh, God's uh, house repaired to someone who's now ignoring all that God says and even murdering God's prophets. Now, many of you know who go to Servants Church that my personal theological conviction is that if somebody has been born again, regenerated by God's spirit, they cannot lose their salvation. And I still believe that. But it's worrying to me that we see within the church people who name the name of Jesus and still are lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now all of us can fall into this, but the fact that that seems to be acceptable and even praised is worrying. It's as defiling to us as God's people as murdering a prophet in the temple of God. It's serious business. And it's what happens when we don't choose our influences carefully. In fact, here's what we see. That Joash and the whole nation of Judah experienced severe consequences because they forsook God. Look at verse 23. 
So it happened in the spring of that year that the army of Syria came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people. And they set uh, all their spoils to the king of Damascus for the army of, of the Syrians came with a small company of men. But here's what happens. The Lord delivered a very great army into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. Do you see what's happening here? That here's Judah that actually has a larger army, but because they've forsaken God, God actually chastens them through a small army. Something that should be easy for them to defeat, but they lose significantly. Why? Because they had forsaken God and God says, okay, fine, you're on your own then. If you want to live without me, if you want to break covenant with me, you're on your own. That's a scary thought. Now what happens? When they had withdrawn from Joash, for he was severely wounded, right? So the Syrians fight. They, they, they wound uh, Joash, but they, they, they don't <laughs> kill him. They, they withdraw. What happens? His own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jeho- Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed, so he died. Notice, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. So Jehoiada, godly man, um, uh, followed the Lord, was a godly influence. When he dies, they bury him with kings, but when the king dies, he's buried in a common man's tomb. Verse 26, these are the ones who conspired against him, and then it names the people who conspire against him as people who uh, you would expect to conspire against a king of Judah. Now, now here's the thing that we need to understand. We look at Joash and we think, man, he failed. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but again, I was sharing with both Joshes this morning how I, I, I feel this. I feel this failure. I don't just look at Joash and think, you're a loser, dude. I look at myself and think, I could easily do the same thing. How easy it could be for me to backslide and walk away from the Lord. And I, and I think, God, how can that be? How can I be yours and think I'm going to pursue godliness and then just slide away? It can be that way because I am a sinner. And I am in desperate need of God's intervention through all of God's resources, His Word, His presence of His Holy Spirit, His people. Or I could easily just walk away. And I, and, I, and I think about this failure of Joash, I think about this failure of mine, and I'm realizing the answer is not, I gotta try harder. The answer is, I need to look to stay even closer to Jesus. Because Jesus, listen, Jesus was the only one to ever, leave, ever perfectly look Godward. His actions, all of his actions, were always motivated by the love of the Father. And Jesus, listen, he is both the standard of what godliness looks like and God's provision for us to become godly. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here's the first phrase that is this mystery, or remember mystery in the New Testament isn't something that we don't know, something, but something that's been revealed. So you might say the revelation of godliness. This is the first bit, that God was manifest in the flesh. You see, God the Son took on flesh, was manifested in the flesh, not just to say, here's the standard, now good luck trying to reach it. But he 
was the perfect man so that he could die a perfect death so that we could be given a perfect position of righteousness with God. And it's from that position of righteousness that we're called to pursue godliness. That, we, that we're called to say, okay, if God so loved you, will you not love him in return? If God's not so committed to you, will you not be committed to him? And God gives us all the resources of heaven that we might pursue this godliness. I think about the things that we are committed to. We mentioned sports teams before, but I even think about sort of working out. So many of you know I was uh, meant to be on sabbatical, so most of March I was on sabbatical, at least three weeks of March I was on sabbatical. So I try to get back into the habit of working out, which isn't that hard when you don't have tons to do because you're on sabbatical. So I worked out about, I think, 13 times in March. And I worked out hard. I mean, I'm working out with weights, fairly heavy weights, for, for a good 45 minutes an hour, sweating, hearts beating like crazy. I'm putting in massive effort. I am exercising myself because I want to get stronger, fitter, feel, feel, feel better. Well, here's what the scripture says. Listen to this. And I'll close with this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Again, I'm <coughs> reading from the New Living Translation. Paul writes, don't waste your time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, he says, train yourself to godliness. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Jehoiada understood something. He understood that the God who made covenant with him and his people was worthy to be pursued. That an an attitude that says, God, I want to be looking to you. I want to be thinking of you. And I want to influence as many people as possible in that direction. He thought, God, you're worth that. It's worth me exercising whatever discipline I need to get to that place. What about you? What do you think? What are you willing to exercise yourself toward? Listen, this is not about you trying harder as much as it is about you looking unto Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, knowing that God sent him so that we could have a relationship with him and so that we could be changed and conformed into his image. That's our destiny as Christians. That one day, soon and very soon, we will have a perfect, perfected God-word attitude or we'll love and will our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Guys, especially in this dark time, that's worthy of pursuing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Father, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Jesus says, that you're with us to the end of the age. Thank you that you're working in us and Lord, we want to cooperate with that work. Lord, we want to not be pulled aside by the love of money, by the love of self, by the love of pleasure. Lord, we want to press on to love you, to have that God-word attitude that shows itself in our actions. Lord, help us to do this. Empower us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, 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 oh,